T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Hit and run with Matt Spiegel. Sunday mornings on The Score. Welcome back in on 670 The Score. It is indeed hit and run. Saturdays have been, uh, have been fun radio, even in these frustrating baseball times this year uh, with my partner Bruce Levine on Inside the Clubhouse. I'm, uh, I'm not going to be a part of it for a while. Here, although I think I do one with you in a couple of weeks, Bruce, but I'll be missing some because I'm going to be uh, sitting in for Dan McNeil along with Danny Parkins for the next two weeks, and then for four weeks in July as well. So I will miss out on time with Bruce. So we'll go ahead and pop Bruce on on a Sunday just to catch up, even though it feels just like yesterday when we talked last. Good morning, Bruce. Yeah, it, it does seem that way, Matt. Uh, good morning to you and. Uh, yeah, you are uh, you're ditching me for the the prime time of during the week. Why don't you just say it like it is? You know, yeah, like uh, this is preferable time for radio, a higher profile, uh, uh-huh. more listeners. So uh, I'll see you when I see you. Yeah. In fact, uh, they're not even paying me. I don't care, Bruce. I just no, wanted I to, understand. I, I just want to get want to get away. You know. Yeah, I I appreciate that. Anybody who's listened to me for the last 40 years can understand what you're talking about. 40 years. Has it been 40 years of radio? 38. 38. Yeah. 38 in Chicago. Yeah. Where, where, where was first 38 years ago? Here yes. in Chicago. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. What, what station? Uh, I didn't have a station. I started uh, with my own independent little uh, company that sold um, little uh, uh, actualities to stations around the Midwest. Mm. I just up and started it. Okay, and uh, it was uh, it was a labor of love. I'd been in uh, other businesses. I always knew I wanted to get back into the sports business because that's was my first love. So, a friend of mine uh, started a radio station uh, in the northern suburbs, and he got me my first credentials to go and get him actualities. And I quickly segued into calling small stations in Wisconsin, Indiana, um, bordering states to uh, send them actualities of the games. And uh, the nice people with the Cubs and White Sox accommodated me with credentials, and that's how I got started. Wow. That, it, was, it, it was fun. Yeah, I, I, never, I never knew that. I should have asked long ago. That's, that's uh, some go get them self-starter uh, activity right there that has, uh, yeah. that, that has helped inform the work ethic of your entire career, hasn't it? And talk about working for nothing. You know, I was I was selling these for like ten dollars in actuality to these stations. You know, so uh, 
you know, on a good week, you know, I could make a, like 130, 140 dollars or something like that, you know, from the first uh, first part of that. And you know, eventually, within a couple of years, I started to make you know a lot of contacts with uh, managers, coaches, players, other media people. Then um, Cheryl Ray and Jerry Cook from WMAQ became mm-hmm. friends. They started putting, giving me work, uh, putting me on with Chet and his show and. The rest is like a pretty boring history. Yeah, not 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 boring to me, not, and not probably not boring to to folks who've been listening to you and 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 knowing it for a while. So, so that's interesting. So that's that's thirty eight years of being around the game, um, mm-hmm. and and seeing the way that that things develop um, in terms of labor strife, and and that's why what you brought yesterday, and I, I would assume t- less than twenty four hours later that you still have is a sense of, if not optimism, at least kind of calm about the ugliness of the moment in terms of negotiations, because this feels familiar uh, to you in terms yeah. of the negotiations part of it. Yeah, you're right, Matt. I mean, uh, again, I don't, I don't do a lot of stressing over things I don't control. I only have the experience of having seen all this before, knowing that uh, owners do not want to lose money, knowing that they're not wanting to bend knowing that the players have felt, and we didn't talk about this yesterday, but I think it's pertinent, Matt. The, favor, the players feel they've lost in the last couple of negotiations big time to the owners, mm-hmm. that the owners' lawyers have outlawed uh, the Players Association. That's huge because the, the positioning that Tony Clark is taking right now is, I'm tired of getting my butt kicked and my players' butts kicked. We made some huge mistakes. We're not going to just lay down for these guys anymore. And, and you're hearing an awful lot of that, I believe, Matt, in the rhetoric and the pushback uh, from this, because it's sounding more like a labor negotiation for a long period of time than it is to just get back to work and play some baseball in one year. Do you think that um, because it's sounding like that and feeling like that and because we have the pending um, ex- expiration of the collective bargaining agreement and more negotiations. Ooh, wee, is that going to be fun? That take place. It, mm. is, is there a chance that progress made this year will carry over to progress next year, and and, and it, possibly it won't be quite as ugly next year? I mean, I guess I'm holding out that kind of hope that yeah. that wherever they get in this particular year will set a template for better or for worse of, of how it's going to be dealt with next year. Well, you know, Matt, uh, baseball, like any business, is about monetizing. And if they see that the monetizing in the sport continues to go down. Two years ago, attendance dropped 4, 4.5%. Last year, another 1.9%. Those were bad trends to begin with, okay? Now, it had peaked out at around 71 or 72 million people a year, uh, the highest ever in baseball. So there's, there was plenty of optimism and good things going on. But the attendance started to drop. And I believe the attendance started to drop because... Uh, the uh, escalation of ticket prices, okay? So the escalation of ticket prices went up so high in a lot of areas that uh, ownership said, okay, even if we don't sell out and we get close to maximize amount of people in the park, if we if we continue to raise ticket prices, okay, yeah. then uh, we're still going to have more, make more money, okay? So that that has been the situation there. Now, it's worked out extremely well up until this point. But uh, now you run the risk of uh, getting back to your initial question, you run the risk of our baseball fans going to continue to support uh, the sport the way they have before. And to answer your 
one question more directly. Yes, it can have an impact if the monetary uh, you know, amounts of money that uh, are coming in are just not there anymore. If the revenues are hurt, then this can help uh, get these two to the table and get a, a better deal done because of the fact that uh, the fans have spoken, the fans are speaking up, the fans are saying, you know, we just can't afford the sport the way it is. Um, you know, there's there's this changing, of course, we see to all the cord cutters away from cable, which had been, you know, a huge part of the money coming in. Now it's uh, different uh, parts of streaming, different parts of uh, sports regionals. So uh, we're seeing a, a big change in baseball and sports in particular anyways when it comes to monetizing the sports. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, Bruce, because... You know, the Cubs get referenced so often. And in the context of what you just talked about, I think people can understand why. You've got the Yankees with an extremely high premium ticket price. The Red Mm -hmm. Sox with a high premium ticket price. But the Red Sox and Fenway, as the template for what the Cubs have done, there are many, many different options for a very high premium ticket price at both Fenway and at Wrigley. All the different clubs that have opened up. All the different ways that you can you know, spend a big dollar on a ticket that comes with all sorts of things. And that's all well and good when those kind of uh, fans with that kind of available spending are plentiful and when there are games. And then all of a sudden when there's not, then the model starts to break down. I wonder if we're going to see as an adjustment some teams and maybe the Cubs among them find a way to have a, a, a lower ticket price entry that comes with some opportunity to to buy more uh, food and drink, but uh, you know, just to kind of revamp, you might they might have to think about revamping some of the systems with which people go to games. If if people don't have as much money as they used to, not as much disposable income, there might have to be a couple of different options as ways to get people in. I bet they're thinking about that kind of thing. Well, I think the Cubs were ahead of the curve. You know, I think uh, Mr. Ricketts and Crane Kenny are ahead of the curve. They realize these things peak out at certain times and therefore starting their own TV network was a way to start segueing uh, more revenue from a different area. Okay. So, I mean, the, the monetizing of the games themselves is, uh, you know, is, you know, proportionally much larger by owning your own network. And uh, even though the, the cost of started, the startup cost is humongous, but uh, absorbing that and seeing, you know, the way that you uh, control, um, you know, more revenue for you by having all the games. I think that's that's the smart the smart part of what the Cubs are doing. Uh, they, they know that they, they're not necessarily going to continue to draw uh, 38, 39,000 uh, every game because of ticket prices, because uh, just looking at the trends of the game, Matt, and knowing that uh, people don't necessarily always have that money and also that they don't have the time in their day to spend three to four hours at a ballpark. So they, I think they're up there with the more progressive teams as far as understanding moving around revenue streams and, and how to keep yourself uh, at the top. In terms of the two sides, Bruce Levine, uh, as we're talking to Bruce right here on 670, the score, in, ter- in terms of the two sides, are they actively talking right now? The perception is that, the owners, you know, flatly turned down the 
players last offer and said, well, we, we might just institute a 48-game season. And then the players put out that statement a couple of days ago where they flexed the muscles and they said there will be no more salary uh, concessions from the players' perspective. And the perception is that they're not even talking right now. What do you know about whether there are conversations ongoing or not? It's a very good question uh, because it's the game within the game, Matt. In, in order for the owners to uh, eventually say, hey, well, we've come to – loggerheads here we uh, we can no longer negotiate anything you have to continue uh strongly to try to negotiate and get something done okay whether you think you're going to get it done or not in, in order for them to do that they they have to show willingness to negotiate and uh and change things and i think they're open to that uh but i think that the last resort is the the thing that's pushing the players back is that you know if they feel they can implement a 50 game season and the and the players do not have a right to strike, you know, what happens then? A grievance is filed by the union. Uh, they try to get courts involved to uh, stop any progress, and all of a sudden you've run out of time for a baseball season. So it doesn't have a good look on either side. You know, I love when people take sides and say, I'm for the players, I'm for the owners. You know, uh, it's, it's a safe bet to say that you and I and everyone else that cares about the game is for the game. But it would be naive to say that the, uh, the the economics of baseball isn't the driving force and nobody wants to lose a lot of money, neither the players or the owners, yet they have to decide how much they want to lose going into this. I mean, will, will a, a fan, Matt, and I'll ask you this question, will a fan look at Mike Trout and knowing that he's getting $32 million a year and say, you know what, I think... Mike Trout, I feel awful for him because he's only going to make like $11 million or $10.5 million this year. He's not getting his full pay. I don't know, I don't know if people can relate to that as losing, right? So when it, when it comes to that and it comes to owners not making the same profits, you know, we're kind of in the dark on all of that. Yeah, but it, it, that's the thing. I mean, that's why usually – the owners win this kind of PR thing because the players are more relatable. And we say, man, they're, they're getting this money to play a game. I played that game. I would play it for that. But I think everybody's going to get looped in here together in terms of the frustration. Oh, yeah. that, that, I, I don't think the player, the owners don't get off the hook. No. I mean, look at, you know, look at the Cubs, for example, eight, $865 million of one of the great buys in history by the Ricketts family, the Cubs, and now it's worth $3.2 billion. Okay, um, will it stay at 3.2 billion with three or four or five down years in baseball as we trend forward? And we we there's a great unknown as to where baseball is going and the economics of the game. So uh, you know, right now, you know, the money is certainly there for all the owners. You, you see, the Kansas City Royals sell for a billion dollars. We saw a few years ago, uh, the Marlins sell for 1.2 billion, even though 400 million were was debt that they were picking up. Um, those are those are huge numbers, you know. So the money is there uh, when when they're sold, and uh, there's there's plenty of money around for both. Uh, I don't I don't think you can pick a you can't pick a, a horse in this. Uh, you can only pick the, the horse of the fan and say, you know, let's get the game back and hopefully get going here because the damage done by missing a whole season, I, I don't think anybody can really talk about. How insurmountable that might be. Thank you, Bruce Levine. Appreciate it. We'll be uh, always hearing... a pleasure, Matt. Um, we will miss you on Saturday. Zach Zaidman will do his very best, and I will to 
shore up of the missing element of uh, Matt Spiegel. But have fun uh, on the afternoon show, and we'll be listening. Thanks so much, Bruce. That's Bruce Levine, the Scores Baseball Insider, right here on 670 The Score. So there is this element of, of inactivity that is part of a negotiation where the owners are waiting for the players to buckle and the players are waiting for the owners to buckle. And during this inactivity, man, they are driving off that cliff, driving off that cliff that Jason Stark warned them to not drive off. They are, as I said earlier, they are Thelma and Louising their way directly off that cliff right now, angering fans by the millions. Good times. Good times. The MLB draft is Wednesday, and there's been developments this week in terms of the amateur players, or I should say the minor league ball players, the minor league ball players, and how they're being treated by the organizations with no minor league baseball on the docket for this year. Let's talk to J.J. Cooper from Baseball America about the draft and about paying minor leaguers or not. Next on 670 The Score. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Well, it is draft day. Hit and run with Matt Spiegel. Sunday mornings on The Score. It's The Score's baseball show, Hit and Run, on a Sunday morning. As hosted by me, Matt Spiegel, right here on 670 The Score. And pleased right now to welcome to the Alpamonte Ford Hotline. Alpamonte Ford is in Melrose Park. J.J. Cooper of Baseball America, who joins us right now. Good morning, J.J. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I love your cover photo on uh, Twitter. Not the, the Twitter profile photo, but the cover, <laughs> which is a giant... Um, you know, uh, a, a giant pile, essentially, of Baseball America prospect handbooks. I have that same shelf somewhere. It's it, like, it, yeah. I've, I've overrun the shelf, unfortunately. Now I'm, I'm, I'm on the shelf two for handbooks, prospect handbooks, because it's it, been 20. It, it, that, that, that's awesome. And, and do you go back and look at them? Because, I mean, that was a harbinger of spring for me every single year. All right, time to make my way to a bookstore. Remember those when they existed and we went to them and stuff like that? Um, make my way to a bookstore and go get myself a prospect handbook, usually the, um, the Baseball Digest um, it, for all the full stats from the previous year and maybe a fantasy preview or two. That was spring every year. We actually now, what we're doing now, we have a, uh, an agreement with this company, Pramana, that does DraftPoint. And with that, we're also now, we've taken all those scouting reports that we have from 20 years of prospect handbooks and going back, you know, we've been doing top tens going back to the 80s. You know, Alan Simpson, founder of Baseball America, essentially kind of created, you know, ranking prospects like that. Um, and so those are all piled in and using natural language processing to try to help us suss out traits and, and other things in, in current prospects and tell, hey, you know, and we're using it for the draft as well, going back to our old draft reports, 
these are traits for that that in the past have been harbingers of good things and sometimes been harbingers of, of bad things. There are things that you would think would be a positive, but there are words that's like, oh, when we use that in the past, it's always been kind of a, something that, that ends up being guys who end up being draft busts. So well, that, we're trying to use that all as much as we can. What's an example of something you'd think was a positive but has ended up seemingly as a negative? Um, something like, I, I mean, it's, it's weird phrasing sometimes, but sometimes it'll be something like scouts are impressed. Scouts are impressed for some reason when we've had that phrase in the past, which, again, now, I mean, I worry going forward. Now I know if I oh, man, don't want to use scouts are impressed if I like this guy or whatever. But <laughs> that's something that when we used in the past, the hit rate on guys that scouts are impressed by a trait is less than if we say, you know, something like he has a, you know, a plus slider. Wow. That's, that's so interesting because scouts are impressed might mean that it's word of mouth and you didn't actually see it, or it might mean that the human element got you in trouble for some reason. Um, that, that's, that's yeah, really I don't interesting. Know. That's really and, interesting. And that's what the thing is, is that it's something where, you know, but, but again, we also use that for, it's a great reminder because we're, you know, we're talking about the draft, the drafts this week. It's a very useful reminder that when we talk about the draft, and we root for prospects. I would love to see every first rounder this year end up being a successful big league player. That's, you know, that, that doesn't hurt anybody. But it's a useful reminder, especially when you get to second round, third round, fourth round, fifth round. There are guys who are going to be up and down guys who may be a reliever who gives a team a good 30, 40 innings some year. That could be a very good fourth round pick. And, and that's something that this also has been useful to be kind of laying out. It's like, you know what? That guy ended up not reaching what we thought he could reach, but being a useful, productive big leaguer in a limited role is still valuable, especially when you get into even just day two of the draft. What, what structure around baseball, whether it is minor league systems or college baseball or, or otherwise, is going to be affected the most by this draft being five rounds and not 40? <laughs> Can I just answer everything? Because. Sure. I, it, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but okay. On one hand, so we're going to have these $20,000 non-drafted free agents. And the crazy scenario that I could envision, and I hope for their sake it doesn't happen this way, but it wouldn't shock me if somewhere there is a senior, there's a guy who signed as a non-drafted free agent for $20,000. There's likely not to be an official minor league season this year. That player shows up to spring training next year where – we expect that there's only going to be four full-season clubs per team and a complex team. So that's, that's five minor league clubs per organization. A team like the Yankees has two GCL, an Appy League, and a New York Penn League, and they now have one rookie ball. So that's, that's trying to tank, turn four teams into one. It wouldn't shock me that somewhere there's an undrafted free agent who gets released next spring training having never played an official game, which you're kind of a pro, but you, know, you, you never even got to – to even have a minor league stat line by your, you know, by, by your name. That, that kind of thing could happen. But you look on the college side, and there are going to be a whole lot of incoming freshmen next year who expected to sign and go pro who aren't going to now. There's going to be a whole lot of juniors and some seniors. Everyone's going to have additional eligibility for next year because of the shutdown who are going to go back to school who expected to go to pro ball. And somewhere in between, somewhere in the middle of this, there's going to be a whole lot of guys who – they were the freshman or the sophomore on the team this year, and they thought, okay, my job, my turn to be the shortstop or to be the second baseman or to be a Sunday starter is next year. And all of a sudden, they're going to turn around and find 
that role is still filled by the same guy that they thought they were going to be saying goodbye to. Hmm. And it's filtering down to junior colleges. It's going to affect every level of baseball in some way, shape, or form. Talking to J.J. Cooper from Baseball America, I noticed that you retweeted, I believe, a tweet from Driveline Baseball where they were helping to educate young prospects, or sorry, young minor leaguers, existing minor leaguers, that they were eligible for unemployment. And just the context of that struck me because how big is the role of driveline and other private baseball schools in the development of prospects these days? And how much bigger is that going to get that role as the industry becomes a bit more privatized as the minor leagues uh, are, are, you know, are narrowed a bit in the coming years? It's funny you ask that. I've got a column in the, in the issue that we're working on right now. It'll be up online before too long. And one of the things that strikes me is when we look at professional affiliated minor league baseball right now, there are some improvements on this, but the existence of the drive lines in all the world, as it applies to professional players, you know, players who are, I'm a farmhand of the Yankees or the Reds or the Red Sox or the Cubs or whoever. Mm-hmm. Logically, they shouldn't have a, 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 a nearly as significant a role. And the reason I say that is, is that if these players are treated as full-time baseball players. Baseball is not a seasonal sport anymore. And I think we're starting to see this heading in this direction. But the reality of it is, is that from a development standpoint, it should not be something where if you're a professional baseball player that come September or come October, if you went to Instructs, or come late October, early November, if you were one of the few guys who went to Arizona Fall League, it shouldn't be something where you're just kind of left to your own devices for training during the offseason. And I, I, I have trouble believing that when we get to 2025, if we're talking about this, that we would say that players are told during the offseason, you're not only responsible for your own training, but you're responsible for paying for your own training. That, that doesn't make sense in an industry, in a $10 billion industry, these are a lot of these minor leaguers who absolutely are going to be very valuable future big leaguers for these clubs. The amount of money we're talking about is so negligible that it just doesn't make sense to me that it won't change where professional baseball down the road is not going to take a larger role in the offseason training of these players because, again, you're, you're, the costs are very minimal. And not only on top of that, but long-term, if you are a professional – Baseball has the best coaches, best instructors, which it logically should, then you want to have them working with your players 12 months a year. But I completely agree with you. Over the last 10 years, we've had an entire rise of, of private training because professional baseball has failed to fill that, that need. Hmm. It's, it's fascinating, I'd, and I wonder if in your column you'll have a chance to sort of compare it to other industries, or even if not in this column, it, it's something that 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 we'll all find ourselves thinking about a little bit because you steal. You see baseball constantly over the last five six years steal instructors from driveline and other baseball mm-hmm. schools. The Cubs just had a director of pitching and a director of hitting, and they grabbed private instructors from from a, a wide variety of places and this is this is what organizations are are doing now so there's a there's a consolidation of of the two entities 
Um, but at the same time, like if if money, if pennies are going to be pinched from big league clubs, much like a lot of other industries, you might see employees in these 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 much sought opportunities to be a baseball player have to be responsible for their own development and and send their people out there to do it. It might become more of the norm. Is it possible that that's the way to do it? Well, one thing I'll say with that is, is that to kind of echo your point, I, when I talk about that, there's going to be more. I really do believe at some point we will get through this and the pennies will be pinched a little less because the payoffs are, are so large for professional teams. That said, there's always going to be a role for private you know, industry in this. And there's always going to be a role. You're also going to see, I think, more and more coaches get poached from college baseball as well because the very structure of how Major League Baseball teams work are kind of anti-innovation in a lot of ways. Now, and I say that from the standpoint of, and I, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with a whole lot of college coaches, but when you look at a top-notch college pitching coach, and we've seen several of these you know, move on to, uh, you know, to, to pro ball in, in recent years and move on to even just major league pitching coaching jobs, but they don't, have to, they don't have to convince a whole lot of people to do something different. Basically, in many cases, it's the head coach, and they'll probably, if it's a, you know, a, a program that has a really good or a really powerful strength and conditioning person, they'll probably involve that person too. But that's it. Well, on the MLB side, even if you want to do something with low-level minor leaguers, you have multiple departments who have to sign off. It's not just getting the GM or the president of baseball to sign off, but it's getting the health and safety. It's getting the, you know, the doctors to sign off, and it's getting the trainers to sign off. And... At some point, you also have to get – the key part also is is you can't be doing something at one level and then the guys move up to high A and all of a sudden they get taught something completely different. So there is an, there's always going to be this natural inclination for MLB to poach because they kind of can let all these other levels innovate, mm-hmm. kind of see what works, what doesn't, and then they can basically say, you know what, we're going to – we're going to hire the one who's already proven that his ideas work, but they're not even asking to innovate as much as they are saying, just do what, implement what you've already proven will work. Hmm, it makes sense. Uh, a couple more quick ones with J.J. Cooper from Baseball America. Um, so the public pressure seems to have worked on both the Oakland A's and the Washington Nationals, and now we have minor leaguers of all 30 teams guaranteed to be paid through the end of June. Um, do you think that will go further into what will be a non-existent minor league year, that the players will end up being paid? A couple of, yeah, I, I do. I, I just I have trouble believing Essentially, if you look back on this, if you reverse engineer it, the A's made a, a clear mistake in hindsight, which is is that they announced to their, you know, I put it in writing, to their players well in advance of the end of May, we're not going to pay you. And obviously at the time, I think they thought that there were going to be a, a multitude of teams who did that, and obviously that did not happen. The Nationals kind of even more bafflingly, you know, were like, hey, we're going to cut your pay by a hundred bucks uh, a week and then back down. Well, I don't see how, what's going to change at the end of June. Uh, hopefully at the end of June, we'll actually be talking about there actually being major league games getting ready to go on. So I don't see how the economic situation is going to change to where it will be more sympathetic for owners to be stopping paying their lowest paid you know, employees. I don't see 
how you're going to see this this massive rush because we already have right now roughly 10 teams who are saying that they're going to pay through the end of the season. I, I The only way that we'll see, I think, a, a significant number of teams not pay for July, and this is purely speculation on my part, is if you had like you, a lot of these teams talk to each other at, when in the lead-up to this. Hey, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? You'd have to have like a band of like five or ten of them who all kind of announce it at the same time to where, in essence, there's safety in numbers. They're, not that there's safety, but the criticism would be spread over a third of the league as opposed to the A's basically looking like they were standing on an island of utter cheapness on their own. And you can't, I mean, it's just not sustainable to do that long term because the reality of it is, is that you are really injuring the culture of your organization for potentially years to come because you look like for all your players that you care for them less than every other team in baseball. Hmm. And JJ, um, what does your gut tell you about the White Sox at 11 and perhaps the Cubs at 16? If it's even projectable to think that far down, it, it, it's hard because again, we're you know 11. Even by 11, you know it depends a lot about what happens ahead of them. The one thing I'll say is, is and we keep we've mocked you know Patrick Baylor a lot, which we admit is not like oh we think Patrick Baylor is a lock for the White Sox by any stretch. I think the White Sox, I, I think college makes sense for them. But, but I do think, you know, for all of us talking, and we've talked about it, they've not drafted a high school player in the first round since Courtney Hawkins. But last year, after the first round, was a very high school-heavy draft for the White Sox. So it wouldn't surprise me nearly as much as it would have a few years ago if the White Sox did go high school, especially high school bat, you know, at pick 11. Because I also think when you look at that kind of that top tier of college hitters, may all be off the board at that point. And so – uh, the value may be in a high school bat at that point. It may be in, you know, the, the Robert Hassels or the Pete Crow Armstrongs, the Tyler Sarstoms, guys like that more so than it is college bat or college arm at that part. At that point, I think the Cubs, you know, being even a little further down, it, it even becomes more difficult because it obviously depends a lot on what, what kind of what happens ahead of them. But I, I just look at the Cubs and say, I know they've made a lot of changes, but the Cubs have had a whole lot more success when they draft a bat in the first round, usually a college bat, but a bat in the first round, and when they draft a pitcher, I think you go with your strength rather than you, you try to fix your weakness in a, in a situation like that. J.J. Cooper, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time, man. Be well and enjoy the draft this week. Sounds good. Thank you. You got it. It's J.J. Cooper from Baseball America. The draft is on TV on Wednesday night and Thursday night on both MLB Network and on ESPN. And much like the NFL draft, they're going to have cameras in the homes of the prospective draftees. I believe they have sent them a kit for broadcast that includes a hat from all 30 teams. So whoever picks them, that hat will be available, that kind of thing. So it'll be interesting. I'll be on with Parkins all week. So I'll be uh, checking out the draft and reporting breathlessly back for you between two and six. Our man, Chris Kampka, the Sultan of Stat from NBC Sports Chicago will join us and tie the room together next as we wrap up Hit and Run on 670 The Score. Welcome back in on 670 The Score. It is me, Matt Spiegel, wrapping things up on Hit and Run as we always do with our man Chris Kampka. Let's get ourselves camp connected as Chris joins us on the Alpamani Ford hotline. Alpamani Ford in Melrose Park. What's up, Chris? How are you, sir? Good. Um, being a good area rug. 
<laughs> doing my thing. Yep, covering the floor like you do, just tying the whole room together. There's a lot of uh, a lot of different things in the room today. We got draftees um, to possibly talk about. We got Dimitri Young. We got a good comp, bad comp on Ricky Henderson. I got, I got a lot of stuff. You, you take me where you want, sir, and I will follow. All right. So um, it's been 221 days since World Series Game 7, the last major league game that counted. Oh. 221 days. Well, 221 home runs by Harold Baines in the White Sox uniform, which is third in White Sox history. Uh, his number three was retired by the Sox. And on this day in 1977, he was drafted number one overall. Wow. He's one of the more amazing stories. Bill Veck had scouted him up in Maryland when he was like 12 years old. At that age, he knew about him, and he picked him first overall. He's a Hall of Famer. And one fun thing about him is he played more games in his major league career after the White Sox retired as number three than he played before. He actually played 1,432 games after he had his number retired, and I think that might be a major league record that might stand for a while. (laughs) That's got to be true, that no one has ever played more games after their number was retired by a given organization. Heck, he came back to the White Sox, what, two more times after that? He did. Actually, Eddie Murray's up there, too. Um, after the, the Orioles retired his number, he, uh-huh. he played a long time as well. But but Baines, though, I mean, that that's great. He played more games after his number retired than Murray did. That, that, that is amazing. Um, uh, and I, I know you love Harold Baines. It's not hard to get back to, uh, to Harold Baines. I loved Dimitri Young as a player, but I had not realized his entire physical evolution that he was – you know, an incredible athlete compared to Bo Jackson in high school. And then as soon as he got the freedom of being a minor leaguer, that's when he started to put on some weight and uh, kind of um, change the, the, the body type a little bit. I had not realized that. Well, well I root for these guys. I'm, I'm part of the bigger group. So you get a big guy like that succeeding. I'm all I'm behind him 100 um, percent. How about this? Of everybody in, uh, in the baseball reference database. <clears throat> yes. Um, he's listed at 295 pounds. Now, of course, he wasn't listed that much throughout his entire career, but just as a reference point, he is the heaviest player to hit at least 20 home runs in the season, which he did three times. Um, so next is Adam Dunn at 285, 282 Aaron Judge, 275 Franmil Reyes, and then 275 Prince Fielder. How about uh, the name Prince? We've heard that in the show, have we not? Yes, we have. Uh, oh, man, Prince Fielder. Prince Fielder got a mention yesterday on Inside the Clubhouse because somehow it came up the consecutive game streak that, uh, th- that you know, Cal Ripken has set. It's Ripken, then it's Gehrig, then it's Everett Scott, and then it's Steve Garvey, and he broke the record of, of, of Billy Williams but the most recent guy to get even close to like 600 was Prince Fielder in 2014. And you don't think of Prince as the model of consistency, but that dude just kept playing and playing and playing uh, during, during his heyday. Boy, of those names you mentioned, Aaron Judge is a completely different body type than the rest of them. Aaron Judge must be the tallest among that group. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very uh, unequal by, by reading those names. 
coming late. Yes. yes. Um, but, I mean, hey, how, how about Prince Fielder? I mean, he had, I believe he had two inside-the-park home runs, which was more than Ricky Henderson had in his career, I believe. No. no. So, um, I believe that's true. Two well, there's one. a... There's a Prince and Ricky Henderson comparison right there, which ties back into good comp, bad comp, me and your buddy Jason Bonetti. Uh, and he comped Ricky Henderson to the ultimate warrior from WWE. I've heard from some people on the text line, you know, speaks your comp of Ricky Henderson might have been better, says this guy. But the ultimate warrior mentioned took me back to a Friday night watching wrestling with my pops as my mom just looked on and shook her head. So, that, uh, <laughs> so maybe you can relate to both of those. It was a fun week. Um, but this week, I'm going to have to give the nod to Jason. Oh. Because, because, okay, because when he went, they both fought an earthquake in 1989. <laughs> that, that's the winner. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, but, 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 but come on. Me likening Ricky Henderson's snatch catch to the Prince falsetto huh, and an eye roll? Come on, that's money. That's money that's right there. Oh, it's not bad. It's not bad. And I think... <laughs> Uh, and I think Prince had the much longer shelf life than the Ultimate Warrior because he was in and out of there constantly. Yeah. Um, I mean, for example, Ricky Henderson holds a major league record that you may not be familiar with. He has 25 seasons with at least one home run, which is the major league record. Wow. No, I, and, I, would, I would not have ever thought of Ricky in that way, and, but we should. And Ricky Henderson, I think Ricky Henderson is like, um, much like a record player. Because he's associated with a lot of records, and he plays at different speeds. Because not only is he the most runs in Major League history, he also had a whole lot of walks. So whether walking or running, he could do it all. Yes. And yes. one quick stolen base nugget. So only three active players in the majors with at least 300 career stolen bases total. And two, if you don't count Rajay Davis, who signed to play for Mexico in Mexico this year, um, but who knows if that'll even happen? Um, so Pete Gordon with 330, Elvis Andrews at 302. Ricky Henderson stole 322 bases. If you just counted the ones where he stole third base. <laughs> See, I love stuff like that. That that's amazing. That that reminds me of. Um, how Wayne Gretzky is the leading scorer in the history of the NHL. And if you took away all the goals he scored, he's still the leading scorer with just assists. He had more assists than anybody else has ever had points total. Yeah, I think with him, the difference between number one and number two in NHL points is the same as the difference between number two and number 90 or something like that. Yeah, something, something crazy like that. We were talking about walks earlier with Ricky Henderson that only four players had more than 2,000 walks in their career. It was Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, number one. Ted, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, Barry Bonds, and Ricky Henderson. And a texter said, boy, I bet Ricky had the fewest intentional walks of those. Ricky Henderson, 326th all-time in intentional walks. 326th, and still he had over 2,000. Why him as much as they did? It's unbelievable. Uh, he's a weapon. I mean, I think Bill James put it the best. Mm-hmm. If you were to split Ricky Henderson in two, you'd have two Hall of Famers. 
Oh, man. I, I think that that's uh, absolutely true. You know what I didn't realize about our guest, Dimitri Young? That he had hit three home runs on opening day. I only ever think of Tuffy Rhodes because it's just so locked into my head that Tuffy Rhodes, the former Cub, three homers, then goes to Japan, has a long career over there, ends up being a member of the White Sox too, though Tuffy Rhodes, right? Uh, no, just um, just uh, just the Cubs, just the Cubs. Chicago team. Okay. They have over, hit over 400 home runs in Japan, and like nobody realizes that that he was like a legitimate all-time star. I think mm-hmm. he even um, tied tied the record. I think that Sadaho owes single-season home run record in Japan. He tied it. I think mm-hmm. it was later broken. I think by Vladimir Valentin of all people. Oh um, my but, god! Yeah, but yeah, Tuffy Rose. One of four players in this, this list is ingrained in my head um, for a reason I'll explain. George Bell was the first to do it in 1988. Tucky Rhodes, Demetri Young in 2005, and Matt Davidson in the White Sox in 2018. I was, I was working that game, so I had to come up with a list of people to do it. And so ever since I memorized that list. But there's four players in three home runs on opening day. Three of them did it against the Royals. Three of them did it on April 4th. So there's a couple little nuggets there. Outstanding. Chris Kapka, you are the best. I love finishing hit and run with you as we do every week. Have a great week, man, okay? Thanks, Speaks. You too. You got it. That's Chris Kampka, the Sultan of Stat from NBC Sports Chicago, and a must-follow on Twitter, at C Kampka, K-A-M-K-A. This has been a blast. Thank you to our guests, Dimitri Young, Chris Kampka, J.J. Cooper, Bruce Levine, and James Fox. Thank you so much to Sean Anderson, who does an absolutely great job Every week. Um, listen to the podcast of Dimitri Young if you missed it. It was, it was special. Special stuff today. And um, have a wonderful week, everybody. I'll be in starting tomorrow on Afternoons. Me and Danny Parkins together from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. right here on 670 The Score. Looking forward to that. Mark Grody is next. So keep it right here. Stay live. Stay local. Stay with us. Have a great day, everybody. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 